0: From the newsroom of the Washington Post.
1: Hello, hey Here's the from the Washington Post. Hi,
2: this is Beth
0: Reinhardt at the Washington Post. It's Lori Aritani over at the Post. I'm This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, October 7th. Today, how Biden's campaign is taking a new track, the most uneven recession in recent history and why tips are disappearing.
2: You've reached Annie Linsky. I'm sorry I can't get to the phone, but leave a message and I'll call you right back. Hello. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Where are you right now? I'm in Wilmington. Where? Yes, because I had to come up to Wilmington yesterday to get a COVID test to get on the plane today to fly out with Biden's press charter to Ohio. So I'm in place to be, um, <laughs> to to be start on as the train as to be on the train tomorrow morning. <laughs>
0: Last week, I called up politics reporter Annie Linsky because she was about to get on a train with Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden. It was kind of a gimmicky campaign thing for the morning after the first presidential debate, starting in Cleveland, stopping in a series of Rust Belt towns and ending somewhere in Western Pennsylvania.
2: Right. Well, that last part about where it ends is also a little hazy to me, but I'm just trying to go with the flow here.
0: One of the reasons why Annie was so excited for this train voyage was she hoped that it would tell us something about the state of the Biden campaign right now.
2: The timing is interesting because, you know, this is like by far the most robust day of campaigning that Biden has had since he's sewn up the nomination in really in, in march
0: mm-hmm.
2: um you know, this is the most number of public events that he's done this is sort of the most creative thing his campaign has done and well and this is going to be six towns in a one-day trip yeah. so it's going to be a, a, a long day hey i've got to get on this bus here can i give you a call back yeah yeah for sure okay thanks, thanks. bye, bye.
0: This week on Tuesday, we checked back in with Annie to get a recap of the train ride and all the things that have happened since.
2: Even in normal campaign times, it, it's highly unusual to go on a train ride with a candidate. We're pulling sure we up to run the run train run station down? at 9.46 AM. I mean, you know, this is a charter train. Um, you know, we're used to, like, bus rides. Welcome I'll be va- welcome aboard. Amazing. All right. I'll definitely be back a few times. There's a cafe car on this train, which is a great relief. We're just getting on for the first time. And the press is in the very back of the train, which is actually the safest area. Oh, no, are we going to be riding backwards? That's not going to be good for me. Oh. no, there's built back better hand sanitizer. So I guess I got to put this on. Huh? Yeah, Thank we you. need to wear the N95s. OK. The OK. And if the you have one. Nice. Thank you. The Biden campaign called it the um, Build Back Better Express. Sort of to focus on their economic message, which is what they were planning on turning to after the debate.
3: Jobs about a lot more than a paycheck.
2: To really pivot to the economy in the final weeks back. of the campaign.
3: It's about being able to hold your head up. That's what a job is about.
2: And You know, that's sort of what everybody believes the closing argument is going to be, is an economic message. It's going to be about jobs.
3: It's about how I'd create good-paying jobs, union jobs, to support w- working families and build our economy back, not just back, but build it back better. Thank you.
2: And it was a really interesting trip. You know, in one way, it felt kind of very old fashioned because it's a train and he stops at the Amtrak station and he gets off and he's talking to people on a, you know, literally on these train platforms. And in another way, it felt very, like, a like normal, like, in this very abnormal campaign that's been just, like, Done via Zoom and and virtually, and like all of a sudden, you you were seeing crowds for the first time, and so you sort of got to see him interacting a little bit with people, which just hasn't been the norm since since March.
0: So that was the day after the first presidential debate, and then it seemed like the news took a complete left turn in terms of what was going on with President Trump and the fact that he had come down with COVID.
2: Yeah. So then the president of the United States gets a positive COVID test and just, I mean, everything changes.
3: I uh, got two two COVID tests this morning, one in Delaware and one by the former White House doc who came up and Everything is clear. We want to make sure everything was clear before I came.
2: You see Joe Biden altering his strategy around his own testing. And so now Joe Biden is going to announce every single COVID test that he takes, whether he is, you know, that he's negative. Um, He had pledged to say that he would share a positive test, but now he's sharing all of the the negative tests. But more consequentially, now he's talking about masks and putting the coronavirus back in the center of his campaign message. You know, hours after Trump is is positive, Joe Biden goes to Michigan and he gives a speech and the speech is memorable, not even really for what he says. I mean, he says much of the same stuff that he's been saying, but he wears a mask for the entirety of his speech. He doesn't take it off once. You know, 20 minutes, he's up there with a microphone, has a mask on. He does the same thing in in Florida yesterday, and it seems like he's really
0: trying to give this appearance of, I I would be the president of responsibility of listening to science of being reasonable and not catching COVID.
2: Absolutely correct. You know, this mask is a symbol of how he handles his own safety and, and sort of by extension how he would handle the you know the safety of the of the country in his campaign's view. As one advisor said to us that Joe Biden intends to be sort of a walking PSA for for masks and good behavior. And, And, you know, to be sure, it hasn't been absent from his campaign at all, but it's been, you know, since Trump's COVID diagnosis, it's really become the center, the centerpiece of his campaign. Um, and you also see it um, happening with the vice presidential debate and the final negotiations over what that's going to look like and, by extension, what the presidential debate will look like. I mean, before the COVID diagnosis, I was writing stories about, you know, are, is Biden's team you know, suggesting that there's a mute button for Trump because Trump was so bombastic. But now, you know, we're talking about is Biden's team suggesting, you know, plexiglass barriers Hmm. to prevent COVID spread.
0: Hmm. I also wonder how this is going to actually change the logistics of campaigning for Biden over the next several weeks. It it strikes me as funny that he has here. He has this one event that's kind of him going back out into the world, being a little bit more public, interacting with more people. And then all of a sudden the president gets covid. And I wonder if there is an urge to quickly pull back and say, you know, well, if, if Trump has covid, certainly we don't want I mean, I don't think they wanted Biden to have covid in the first place, but like we don't want to take any risks that could possibly get Biden sick as well.
2: I think that's right. I think that the method of campaigning is also changing. My Biden, do you have a
3: reaction to President Trump leaving Walter Reed last night to speak to his supporters? I, I'm reluctant to comment on anything the president's health of what he's doing and not
0: doing.
2: And, you know, Biden's team all along has said, look, we're taking really strong precautions. And it's true. They have. They have been very careful. But that has gone sort of from, like, Uh, like 9 to like a 15. And you saw it in Florida. If you're feeling better by the 15th and you have a debate, what kinds of safety precautions would you like to see? Would you like it to be a virtual debate? With Dr. Jill Biden sort of physically pulling former Vice President Biden away from reporters. I'm sorry. Because he was sort of getting too close to them. That it's safe and the distances are safe and really sort of enforcing this, this distance. And yes, there's always been a, a, a attempt to keep this distance between the the press and Biden and also just sort of real people and Biden, but that always, you know, there, there have certainly been exceptions. I mean, going back to the train ride, you know, when I was on the aboard the train Biden was having a sort of smaller conversation with two supporters you know, aboard that cafe car he was wearing his mask, but then somebody um, he was talking to just really couldn't understand what he was saying. So Biden just lowered his mask and, and just kept it down, you know, so that, to make the conversation easier. And, you know, I remember I sort of mentioned that moment in the in poll report that I wrote for other reporters. Um, but I, it, it was also sort of striking because I was just like, oh, you know, I thought back on it a lot, like thinking, wow, I bet that wouldn't happen again. That's the type of little slip that you wouldn't see going forward.
0: Is there a concern within Biden's camp that the fact that Trump has COVID, is he at Walter Reed? Is he not at Walter Reed? What is happening with the president? That all of these questions are sucking so much oxygen out of the room that it will be hard for Biden to get attention in these last critical weeks before the election? You
2: know, I think that's a good question. Um but I don't think it is uh, a concern. I think that the fact that the president has COVID puts COVID directly back into the center of the conversation and the campaign. And that is really what Biden has wanted to campaign on. I mean, you know, before this happened, I have to say, you know, there have been some sort of discussions about the opposite, which is with COVID receding in a lot of places, it, it, was Biden's message going to be less potent? You know, it, are, are are people ready to kind of move on from this? People are getting back to normal. Museums are opening. Restaurants are opening. Gyms are opening. And, you know, there was a sense among Democrats that the economy is really the message that Biden needs to close his campaign on. It's got to be jobs has been the message that Biden's been hearing from Democrats. And, you know, he's, he's listened. I mean, it was the Build Back Better train tour. It, it was about jobs. Um, and I think he'll he'll still talk about jobs, but but Trump's diagnosis puts the coronavirus right back in the center of the campaign. And that is the message that Biden has been doing particularly well on. That's where he really opens up a gap um, among seniors, which is is really stunning. I mean, Biden's own pollster, um you know if you just look at his Twitter feed, he's constantly writing about this this gap that he's found quite surprising, that Democrats are winning seniors for the first time in, I think, roughly two decades. People that are sensitive and aren't forgetting COVID and and see Trump's behavior as highly irresponsible.
0: Annie Linsky is a politics reporter for The Post. On Tuesday night, The Commission on Presidential Debates announced that Vice President Pence has now agreed to have a plexiglass barricade on his side of the stage for Wednesday's debate.
3: Risks of overdoing it seem, for now, to be smaller. Even if policy actions ultimately prove to be greater than needed,
0: they will not go to waste. On Tuesday, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell warned that the economy will suffer without another stimulus bill from Congress. President Trump seemed to agree. But then, that afternoon, he announced on Twitter that he was stopping negotiations until after the election.
2: Markets
3: are falling after President Trump announced on Twitter that he is ending all negotiations on any sort of coronavirus relief deal.
0: But then, on Tuesday night, Trump swerved again. He tweeted that he might be open to approving more economic relief after all, especially for airlines. But in the meantime, for many Americans... It's still really bad. I'm
3: Heather Long, economics correspondent at The Washington Post we're basically half recovered. Some industries like housing and construction are pretty much back while others, airlines, tourism, restaurants, I think we can all see are very far from back. And I think for a while now, we've been talking about how unequal this recession is. It obviously hit certain sectors worse than others. But what we realized as we went back and and really did a lot of data analysis in the last few weeks, is this recession has hit low-income workers a magnitude more than what we have ever seen, even during the Great Recession about a decade ago. This recession, low-income workers are basically experiencing a depression, while high-income workers, people who can work from home, are really not feeling this at all and are basically recovered.
0: And you've been analyzing a lot of new data about just how stark that difference is between low-income and middle-income or high-income workers in terms of what they're feeling right now. Tell me more about what you've been seeing in that data. It's eight
3: times Worse, the job losses for low-income workers than it is for high-income workers, and those numbers don't always mean a lot. You know, eight times worse. How do you think about that? Um, And I would guess I would say it this way: We still have 26 million people who are on unemployment in this country, and more companies like Disney and uh, Continental and Goldman Sachs and the airlines who say they're going to lay people off in the next few days. So. There's just no end in sight to these layoffs, and most of them are happening to people like uh, Natasha Smith, a um, housekeeper in Shreveport, Louisiana, who used to work at a casino. Obviously, the casino closed in March. She lost her job. She thought, like a lot of people, hey, I'll go back in the summer when it reopens. Guess what? In the middle of May, that hotel and casino decided to close forever. So that job is never coming back. She's living off $100.00 a week in unemployment right now. And when I called her and talked to her, I said, open your fridge, tell me what's in your refrigerator right now. And she said, I see two things, a packet of wings and a packet of thighs. Hmm. And that's it.
0: Wow. And demographically, when you break down the, the the group of low-income workers that are having the most challenges right now, within that group, who is hurting particularly?
3: This is also highly uneven. Again, we talk a lot about the nation being 50% recovered, about half the jobs being back. But when you start breaking it down by different groups, you see something a very, very different pattern. So for example, white women are 61% of their jobs are back versus um, African-American women, it's only 34%. Mm. So they're still barely a third back. So in our story, we looked at What are the groups that aren't yet 50% back to really try to see who's been hard hit and recovering really slowly? And here's that list mothers of school aged children, so children who are ages six to 17, black men. Black women, Hispanic men, Asian Americans, younger Americans, particularly those under 34. So people in their 20s and early 30s and Americans who have high school degrees, so who don't have college degrees.
0: Hmm. And what does that tell you?
3: It tells us that this recession really hit people who Already didn't make a lot of money. You know these people are heavily overrepresented in the service sector, in the hotel and restaurant jobs, and hospitality, and working at stadiums and, and hair salons. These types of jobs, and the average pay in those jobs is fifteen to seventeen dollars an hour, and that's the average. So these are workers who didn't have a lot of savings before this crisis hit. They can't work from home, and it's probably going to be months if not longer, if not years before their jobs come back, if they ever do.
0: You know, when you published this story about this data, you had a lot of graphs in there, and it basically showed the difference between how this recession looks versus previous recessions. And the impression that I got from looking at it was that, you know, in 2008, and recessions before that, there was this sense that we're all in this together, that on every income scale, people are losing their jobs, and that when the economy recovered, people were gaining back those jobs at about the same rate. But it seems like with this one, when you look at it, you know, you see middle and higher income workers that are especially higher income workers that are kind of chugging steadily along. There's a slight dip, but then the dip recovers pretty quickly. And the difference in that line is just so dramatic for people who are lower income. And there's two completely different realities for different people.
3: It really is. I keep saying to people, it really is a depression like scenario for certainly the bottom third of workers, arguably the bottom half. And it's a slight inconvenience for the top half certainly the top 25%. Basically what happened in this in this crisis is the less workers earned at their job the more likely they were to lose the job as businesses closed across the country. And again, we often economists often talk about oh every time a recession hits, obviously the most vulnerable and lower paid workers do get hit the hardest because when they lose their jobs, obviously they they can end up losing a home or losing a car. It's you know, it's a quick downward spiral. But we this just the magnitude of what we're seeing right now, we have never experienced certainly in modern US history.
0: And when you think about how this is going to play out going forward, I think we have to keep in mind that what we've seen so far is inclusive of the fact that there has been government aid, that there were those $1,200 checks that were mailed out to a bunch of people, that there was federal aid helping with unemployment benefits, and a lot of that is gone at this point. So what does that say about where things are going to go in the coming weeks and months?
3: I am hugely worried and working on the story. We wanted to do more than just show the numbers. And as we called people around the country, three different people who had written into the post about their problems, as I went to call them, their phone numbers had been disconnected. And that to me is a huge sign. You know, Not only can are they probably struggling with rent or putting food on the table, but you know it's bad when somebody can't pay their phone bill. And I think of people like Jessica Duke, you know, single mom in, in North Carolina, just outside Charlotte, North Carolina. And like many cities, Charlotte's seen a big uh, boom in home sales and home prices rising. And she just had her car repossessed because she couldn't pay her car bill. And you know, when I talked to her, I said, what are you eating for dinner tonight? And she said, you know, her, her, she and her two kids are surviving on ramen noodles and spaghettios, and generally she said she had lost 38 pounds in this pandemic because of the stress and there isn't enough food. Wow. And that's where you see, we know these stories, we know people have just barely been getting by, but you're right those stimulus checks are gone. They've been spent from the spring and summer. And even that unemployment aid, I keep reminding people through July, it was about average of 900 a week. In August and early September, that fell to about 600 a week after Trump's executive order and Congress let the aid expire. And now the average is around 300 a week. And as we show in the story, that's the average. A lot of people don't make 300 a week. Um, For instance, this woman in North Carolina is only Getting $86 a week.
0: Do you think that what we're seeing now in the state of the economy and the people for whom the economy is worst right now, do you know how this is going to shape the country going forward?
3: This could have huge implications for the country going forward. Obviously, an economy where half the people are doing pretty well and half the people aren't, uh, is, not, is not stable. We're a consumer economy and we need uh, people to be able to go out and spend. And when we have this many people on unemployment and this many people not able to pay their electric bills or you know, go out and buy food, um, that's hugely problematic for those people as, as more and more of them slip into poverty and for our economy as a whole. You know, for years in America, we really focused on the loss of blue collar jobs and manufacturing jobs. And that was a huge part of the story in the Great Recession, more of those manufacturing jobs being lost. And President Trump campaigned on bringing back the forgotten man and woman and helping them again. We now have an entirely new group of forgotten men and women. It's a lot of these service sector workers, particularly black men, black women, Hispanic, men, uh, sometimes moms, Americans without college degrees. And a lot of these people's jobs probably aren't going to come back, you know, business travel, working uh, in urban offices. It will come back somewhat, but is it going to come back at pre-COVID levels? Probably not. And that means a lot of those jobs that serve those people are not going to come back. How are we going to help these people transition? What are they going to do in 2021, 2022, and 2023? That's
0: a huge challenge for our nation. Heather Long is an economics correspondent for The Post. Now, one more thing.
1: workers at restaurants, salons, spas, and other service jobs typically rely on tips um, as well as bonuses and commissions for much of their pay. And that means that many of their wages are predicated on having to keep customers happy and engaged.
0: That's reporter Abba Baturai. She covers the retail industry for the post, and she's been hearing a lot from people who work in the service industry
1: even the most basic interactions with customers as well as coworkers, have become much more difficult during the pandemic. A lot of people just want to stop in and go right back out. They don't want to make small talk. They don't want to have that sort of friendly rapport that usually translates into larger tips. And it's also become more difficult just to show that you're a pleasant, friendly person when you're wearing a mask or when you know you're having to stay socially distant from your customers. And as a result of all that, workers' tips, commissions,
0: and bonuses are going way down.
1: So the country has about 17 million leisure hospitality and retail workers in the service industry and they work in jobs that have already been very hard hit during the pandemic many of them were the first to be laid off or furloughed when the shutdowns happened they were slow to be called back and now that restaurants and stores are opening up in many parts of the country they're dealing with capacity limits and other challenges and that's on top of long standing issues i mean these are typically low wage jobs that don't come with health insurance or other benefits and now they're finding that they're in even worse shape because because they're losing out on tips and commissions and bonuses that they rely on. I spoke with Sam Tuttle, who's a waiter at a Las Vegas restaurant, and he says his tips have fallen about 30% during the pandemic. He tries as much as he can to smile really big under his mask, and he's using hand gestures to make up for what's you know lost in communication. But he says many customers are still grumpy about having to wear masks. They're kind of put off by all of the social distancing measures and just very tense and on edge. And that's translated into a huge drop off in tips. I also talked with Ariana, who's a dancer at a gentleman's club in Chicago. She works in the ultimate customer service job in a lot of ways, and she relies on tips for all of her take-home pay. She says that it's become much more difficult to build a connection with customers. She requires that her clients wear masks and stay six feet away from her, as far away from her as possible, don't touch her, and all of those things make it so much more difficult for her to secure tips. Some nights she says she goes home with about $60 in her pocket after a full shift, whereas before the pandemic, she was easily making 10 to 20 times that amount. Labor experts and economists say that while lawmakers are coming up with packages to help the unemployed and other people who are struggling right now, these service workers who have jobs but aren't making as much as they used to are sort of the last priority. There is a sense that we've reached an inflection point and that companies are going to have to eventually restructure the way service workers are paid and how their wages are constructed. But we're not at that point yet, and it could be months or years before we get there.
0: Abba Bhattarai covers the retail industry for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Tonight is the debate between Vice President Pence and Senator Kamala Harris. We will be broadcasting the whole thing at WashingtonPost.com and on our YouTube channel. Our coverage starts at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and the debate begins at 9. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.